You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Amen. So good to see you this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. If you'd like to use the Black Pew Bible, you can find that toward the end of the Bible on page 190. Just to give you a little update on where we're going from here, we will be looking at this text and then finishing the chapter next Sunday. And then the very next Sunday, we have what uh, some of you who are new to our church may have not uh, been here for uh, previously, which is called the State of the Church Sermon. This is something that we have done every year uh, in the life of our church. It's always based upon the same text of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, which is the kind of life verse or passage of our church. It's why our church is named Paramount Church. And this year, Pastor Isaac will be delivering our State of the Church Sermon giving us an opportunity to reflect upon the last year or so and look forward to what we pray God is doing among us in these coming months. And then after that, it will be December. And so we will be taking a brief break for just those four weeks from Revelation and looking at a number of other texts, still keeping our eyes on Jesus and keeping our eyes on Jesus as King. And then at the new year, we'll come back to Revelation once again. So it is our prayer every week as pastors. I hope that it is your prayer for us as pastors and for us as a church that the Lord would continue to work by his grace to plant his word in our hearts. We want to know him more. We want to know Christ more. We want to know who he is. Well, this morning we have a wonderful opportunity to continue that journey together. In fact, it is a journey that will never end. It's one of those things that God has placed in our lives, in the Christian life, that will never simply get old. You cannot, I cannot corner Jesus. We don't corner him like we corner a market. We don't corner him like we corner a subject in the world that we might exhaust the resources we have to understand it or somehow we could swim to the bottom of it or reach to the top of it, but instead ongoing There will never be a point in this life or in the life to come where we will stop learning the answer to that question, who is Jesus? So this morning as we begin, I want you to ask yourself that question. I want you to think about it. Who is Jesus to you? I'm not asking that question in the sense that maybe the world would ask it, that everyone has their own independent right to determine who Jesus is to me but rather in a more personal way, I want you to think, who is Jesus to you? I have an elderly friend named Bobby that I spend time with from time to time. And uh, one of the things that I have noticed throughout my conversations with her is the way that she talks about Jesus. She talks about Jesus, honestly, in a way that I've not heard many Christians talk about him. She talks about Jesus in a way that I don't talk about him. Whenever she refers to Jesus, she always puts just before his name the word my. She always talks about my Jesus. She always talks about wanting other people to come to know her Jesus. And that has always been so profound and impactful to me because even that one word changes things. 
it changes Jesus to me. It changes Jesus from being this sometimes generic kind of figure in the world, like an historic figure. You don't say that about Napoleon. You don't say that about any other president or king or figure in history. You don't say, my Napoleon. But she says, my Jesus. And it really has made an impact upon me, and I've thought about that quite a bit. And so I want us to consider today, who is Jesus to you? Again, this is something that we can't exhaust. It's something we need to keep on doing as a church in community group life together over coffee and lunch and in good times and bad times because this is one of those things that we'll never exhaust, but it's also something that seems to fade away. You know, newlyweds, those in young love, they can go on and on and on in dreamy descriptions of their lovers. But give them a little time, and that starts to fade away. Now, it's replaced by something that's also beautiful, a kind of familiarity, a a kind of comfort, a kind of, of stability. You can't live there all the time. But when we think about our relationship with Jesus, it ought never to be that way. We don't want it to be that way. We don't want the zeal to fade away in that sense. We want it to continue to be fresh, young love for Christ, for our Jesus. And in that, we want to be more and more articulate about who this Jesus is. That's why I'm asking you the question, who is Jesus to you? In this text, John is going to tell us not only who Jesus is to him, but who Jesus is to Jesus. He's going to tell us some things about Jesus that we want to grab hold of in our hearts among millions of other things that we'll continue to unpack down through the ages of history and eternity. And this morning, I want to show you just three from this text in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. We can begin here with just four verses of sort of introduction to what we consider this morning as we hear from John as he sets up what he's doing in this this letter. And we start in verse 9. We see that John announces himself. He says, I, John, your brother. We have right from the start of this text, this this return of, of familial language that comes up so much in Scripture. We're reminded that Scripture has been delivered to a people, to a chosen people who belong together, who've been united together, who have been made not just friends, not just acquaintances or co-workers or even neighbors, but that they have become, we have become, family. And so John says, I, John, your brother, he's speaking to his family. He's speaking to the family here of these believers who would read these letters, and he's even speaking to us by the Holy Spirit as his family. John is your and my family. But he goes on and he describes the kind of family that he is. He's not just fair-weather family. He's the kind of family that walks with you through really difficult times because he says next that he's also a fellow participant in three things. A fellow participant, first, in the tribulation that comes in Jesus. These people and many others 
throughout Scripture, including John, including many of us at times of varying degrees, go through tribulation simply for following Christ. And John is certainly not exempt from this. He is a fellow participant in tribulation. And yet all throughout this letter that he's written, he's continued to be pressed on, not in despair, but in in enormous hope because he's also a fellow participant in the kingdom, in the reign and control and the sovereign care and love of Jesus Christ because this too he calls the kingdom in Jesus. And then in the midst of all of that, because of his hope, because of the tribulation, you put those two things together and you see what comes out of those who belong to Christ. And he says, and he's a fellow participant in the perseverance that is in Jesus. John is a man who has been persevering by grace and he's writing a letter about persevering by grace. And when we say that by grace, we're talking about the, the incredible gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been given to us as some of his chosen people. He has announced good news to us that in the midst of our tribulation, he remains king, he perseveres with us, and all of it is happening in him. John tells us what we think is some of the suffering that he experienced in Jesus. Because next he says that he was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This island was a small island about five miles wide and eight miles long out in the Aegean Sea. And by the context, it seems that John had been sent there as some sort of judgment or punishment for following Christ. Now, there isn't any historic record of this place being used as an island for misfits and criminals, but it does seem that this is what John is experiencing, some kind of suffering. But while he is there, he's not alone. While he is there, he is not giving in to despair. While he's there, he is worshiping. He is going to church because he says next in verse 10 that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. These are worship words. Being in the spirit on the Lord's day says that he was worshiping. That's not the only thing that tells us he was worshiping, but again, in just a few words later, he talks about the sound of a trumpet or what might bring to our minds from the Old Testament, the shofar, which would be blown to announce a, a call to worship, even a call to war. But in the Lord's day, he was in the spirit and he heard behind him a loud voice like a call to worship, saying, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. He was commanded by God to write down this vision in the spirit on the Lord's day that he was going to receive as someone who was a brother and fellow participant in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance among all of God's people so that they could have it. And this letter became a kind of circular letter. It went to seven different cities. You read them there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. What's interesting is that these are not the most prominent cities. They're not the most special cities. But in fact, they're cities that were chosen, it seems, on a kind of semicircle arc where this letter would pass from one to the next, covering all of the churches. And perhaps we hope and we know because we're reading it that it's read by others. It's read even here by, by Paramount. 
But you see that he was wanting him to write this down. When I read those words, write on a scroll, I am so grateful for them because it reminds me again and again of my need for the Bible. Can you imagine, as others have experienced in the past, as some experience even today, not having a Bible? Can you imagine if I had to come up before you on Sunday mornings or any of our other pastors and preach purely from memory? And I didn't say open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I said try to remember in your mind Revelation chapter 1 and we go about that together. That's one of the worst things that I can imagine for our church because my memory is just so very bad. I've even been impressed by that recently. We've talked about that at home. A real concern that has captivated my attention is that here we are with these five kids and we're, we're going through all of these exciting things, changes in life and college applications and making the basketball team and all the rest. And I am just struck by the fact that we won't remember any of it. I don't remember anything when I was 16 and neither do you. You won't remember it. But God knows, and God knows that we need to remember. And you know what he's done? He has made sure that the most important things that you will need to remember have been written down for you. Down through the ages, he has preserved his word in every moment of history. When Bibles were burned in streets, he preserved his word to carry it down to you so that you could have it. And even here, he says to John, write, write on a scroll what you see so that everyone can have it. I hope that you're grateful today for the word of God. I hope that you're happy to have it on your phone, in your hand, by your bedside, in your car, in your pocket. And then, because of our good use of it, in your heart, but nevertheless, having it here with us this morning. We want to make the most of this word of God. And this morning we do it by looking at Jesus and noticing these three things. Who is this Jesus of ours? Among many things, this first, Jesus is our wise priest. John goes on and he begins talking about this vision. And he says, after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's something that you actually will see quite a bit around here in windows not too long from now, which are kind of like a menorah with seven candles. It seems that that's likely the kind of thing that he was seeing, though it's symbolic, and it is a reference to these churches. He saw the seven golden lampstands, which come up over and over again in Revelation, and they represent those seven churches in such an important way, a way that we want to we see our church, we want to see our lives as lights, Lights that are shining in windows. We want our testimony. We want our church. We want our Thanksgiving dinner. We want uh, everything that we do gathered together and out in the world to be a light, just like these seven golden lampstands. These seven golden lampstands, just like we need Jesus to be this, our wise priest. We need his wisdom. We need his care And so John goes on in the vision and he says, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man 
clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and wrapped around the chest was a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. It's perhaps not as common today, but throughout history, many cultures, including ours in this country, have honored older people and seen what is common among them, which is gray hair, not as something to look down upon, not as something to rid from our culture and world, but as something to celebrate. It, it is a symbol. It is a symbol of, of, of age, certainly. Look at me. I'm almost completely white, and I'm only 44 years old. It is certainly a symbol of age. Every day, another one sprouts anew. But it's also a symbol of wisdom. And it seems that that's true here in this text as well, that there is an unparalleled, shining wisdom that is ours in Christ. It's the kind of wisdom that we desperately need. It's the kind of wisdom I feel such a need for on a daily basis because how many times do you and I face something and feel like, I just don't know what to do about that? How many times throughout the day are you faced with different temptations or trials or troubles and you just sort of inwardly, though maybe you hide it on the outside, are scrambling for some answer to the question, what in the world am I supposed to do about this? Well, John and those to whom he's writing, even ourselves, they know what this is like because he's already told them that he's a fellow participant with them in tribulation, a time that calls upon us to have incredible wisdom, the, the wisdom of Solomon, sometimes we would say, the wisest person to ever live. But even here, we have something better. It is the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Do you know what the average age is when someone's hair turns gray? right around 40, which makes sense. That's born true in my life, maybe in yours too, some, some earlier, some later. What's so interesting to me about that is that that has even been kind of a symbol of my experience as a pastor, as a Christian, in particular as a pastor. I remember in early, early days of, of seminary and trying to understand what it would mean to, to be a pastor of a church. I remember hearing from one of my if not the ultimate mentor of my life and ministry, say, at about the same age I am now, he said, I think the optimum age to become a pastor is 40. He said, because I don't feel like I even knew what I was doing until I reached 40. And again, it's true that some gain lots of maturity earlier, some lag more later in life, but I certainly have found that to be true. I've even found that to be true in my life. Just things are changing as we get older. We are changing. And so it ought to bring us some humility to know that we are desperately in need of this kind of wisdom. Even if you are around that age, I hope that you'll look to it and consider your need for it. Your need for what time and wisdom can do for you, even with the coming of a certain age or a certain stage of life. I can even read you a poem that was written for a, a fellow pastor when, actually when he turned 40, a poem called 40 Turns a Man. It goes like this. 40 turns a man from joking and hoking to focusing his life 
to leading and pleading against the strife, to praying and slaying his sin so rife, 40 turns a man. 40 turns a man from regretting and fretting to setting his face, to striving and thriving in sovereign grace, to running and cunning towards glory's place. 40 turns a man. 40 turns a man from withering and dithering to pleasing his king, to fighting and riding the deathly sting, to resting and testing God's shadowed wing. 40 turns a man. 40 turns a man from sitting and quitting to reaching the goal, to persisting and resisting the punishing toll, to living and giving under God's gracious control. 40 turns a man. 40 turns a man from feigning and draining to fulfilling his call to vaulting and exalting Christ above all to voicing and rejoicing the gospel trawl. 40 turns a man. That poem has been so encouraging to me at this stage of life, but ultimately it is a reminder of the source of wisdom, that kind of wisdom that doesn't come because you happen to blow 40 candles out on a birthday cake. It comes because you know Christ. And it comes to you in knowing Christ because his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, full of wisdom, and even full of purity, another symbol for that color in Scripture, ultimate, ultimate purity, the kind of purity that can only belong to someone like this, who John goes on to say, has eyes like a flame of fire. You're getting this picture of Jesus that is unlike anyone else. You may see people who have hair and heads white as wool, like snow, but you've never seen someone pure like him. And you've never seen someone with eyes like a flame of fire. There's no doubt that this symbol in Scripture here given to us in the text is a symbol for for incredible omniscient vision. The ability to know these churches and to know all of their ways, to be burning with fire in vision. This was also a common pagan depiction of deities to try to ascribe to them a kind of understanding. It was the picture that that came to mind of what would it be like if someone really understood the world, really had knowledge of truth. It would be like their eyes were on fire, like they could see anything. But Jesus is the one who is truly on fire with wisdom and purity. He is the one who understands. He is the one who knows. It's amazing because Jesus is not only wise like a scholar, but he is wise in even the execution of his priestly office. That's why in this first part of the text, I'm encouraging us to see Jesus as not just wise, but as John says, our wise priest. It's another part of the way that he is described in the vision. Look at what he says in verse 13. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. There's that depiction uh, from the book of Daniel of Jesus' favorite title for himself. It was a way of talking about himself as, as an ultimate redeemer and in particular, ultimately as one holding the ultimate priestly office. And that's why he's described in this way. He's clothed with a robe reaching to his feet And he's wrapped in a golden sash. 
This is symbolic of the way that priests would dress as they would go before God on behalf of of other people. That is who Jesus is. He is the go-between. He is the mediator between God and men. He is the one who is wrapped in this glory with flaming eyes and white wisdom and purity. And he is the one who cares for his people. He is the priest. But what's also interesting here, a small note in terms of the, the language that John uses, the language that God uses is that he's not just a priest that goes in and does his job and comes out and he's done, but he is a priest who is continually nourishing his people. This might be somewhat of an awkward image for us uh, today in this modern moment, but when you read the words wrapped around the chest, it's interesting that he does not use the word for chest he actually uses the word mastoi for breast. And just as other pagan deities would use this picture as a kind of sash or something wrapped around the the breast, it would be a symbol of, of nourishment, just as a nursing mother would nurse and nourish her children. Perhaps even here, John is pointing out that Jesus is not a priest who walks in and walks out and goes home, but he is a priest who goes in and he He nourishes with spiritual milk and truth, with his wisdom, his people forevermore. Of course, all of this is summed up in that title, Son of Man. It's also a reference to his ultimate divinity because as he is described this way and as he's given yet again that kind of language of Son of Man, which comes up in Daniel 7, 9, listen to what it says about the ancient of days. You tell me who these two texts are talking about, someone different or someone the same. It says in Daniel 7, the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Jesus is our divine priest. So we have this morning this call from this text for us to do what we're reminded of often, but quickly forget, I know that I do, and that is that we would use this text and apply it to our lives by submitting ourselves to the divine wisdom of our Jesus. Would you submit yourself to the divine wisdom of our Jesus today? that you would begin or hopefully continue for many of us in better and brighter ways to really search out the wisdom of who Jesus is and what he says in every area of life. How quick are we? How quick am I in moments of tribulation, in need of perseverance, forgetful of the kingdom to which we belong, How quick are we in times of trouble to immediately look somewhere else for wisdom, not first coming to Christ, who is our wisdom? I have an incredible concern for the church today. I hope that you do too. I am amazed at what so many in the church today believe, how we have been bewitched, how we have been tricked, how we have been distracted and refocused on all of these other things. And yet here is what we have been given, Christ who is our wisdom. We pray, oh God, give us wisdom. Oh God, give us your wisdom. And he has. 
He has given us his wisdom in the person of Christ himself, who is our wise priest. Second, let's see this. Jesus, in addition to being our wise priest, is also, as this text puts it, our brilliant power. He goes on in this incredible description of Jesus in the vision. He says in verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, which it has been heated into a glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Two very important descriptions there, striking descriptions. His feet are like bronze. It's a little bit unclear what this is like because we only read about this here. But getting some sense of what it could mean, it seems that As we know, if you were to put bronze in a fire and heat it in a furnace, it does something interesting. It glows hot white, radiant, like molten gold. And here we're told that his feet are white hot. It's as though they're white hot with the fire of brilliant power. It's the picture, remember, symbolic, as though everywhere his feet carry him, they are carrying him in this this glow of glory and magnificence, of fire and beauty and brightness, brilliance are on his feet. And his voice is like the sound of many waters. The sound of many waters. This is so helpful to me because it reminds me, I hope it reminds you, as we see it here of of our place in the text. You know, it's okay and right for us as we read the scriptures to say, Jesus, my Jesus, where do you want me? Where do you put me in your word? How does my story fit into your story? Here's one of those places where it seems that we are shadowed. We are hidden. We are embedded in this text because his voice is like the sound of, of many waters. Scholars who have read this text and studied it at great length have come to believe that this is a reference to the swelling voices of God's people. That when he walks around everywhere that he goes encircled in brilliant, glorious light, his voice speaking is like a thousand voices It's like rushing waters, those being the voices of his people. His brilliant power is felt in the world as his people together with him join their voices in announcing his presence, announcing his good news, communicating to the world the truth of who he really is. And there we are, I believe. We are there in our rightful place where we want to be, gathered together as his people in one voice that is his voice. And that our voice has grown so loud because of the unity of Christ, because he's brought us together and he's caused us to sing the same song, to chant the the same cheer that we together with him sound like rushing water. Have you ever heard rushing water? at a waterfall, if you get up against it, you, you can't hear anyone else. You can't hear anything else. It's just the sound of rushing water. Have you ever been in a giant crowd of people? Say in a large horse-shaped, <laughs> horseshoe-shaped arena? I actually had a wonderful 
experience the other day. It was amazing to me. I took Ezra to our first Columbus Blue Jackets game. He's never been to anything like that before. He's never been in a crowd of people like that before. It was an enormous crowd of people. And we went in and we sat down. The people that we were with who gave us these tickets are awesome, you know, really good tickets. We're right in the middle of the crowd. And you know how it is. Everybody's kind of watching and excited and, and the, the decibels are kind of down here for a while until something happens. It goes up a little bit, up a little bit until, until the buzzer goes off because they've scored a goal and the whole place erupts in applause. He was transported to another dimension. I've never seen anything like that in a person's face. He fell back in his chair. It was like he had seen heaven. And I thought, that's what it's like. That's what Jesus' voice is like. But they're not cheering over a goal. They're cheering over Christ. That's what it's like. It enraptures you. It envelops you. It dominates the scene. This is the dominating voice of Christ. Put this together. He is glorious. He is glowing in power with his people. That's an amazing thought. I hope that you and I will appreciate that more and more as we walk through the book of Revelation and through all of the words of Scripture, just to think of that thought that he is with his people. Someone so majestic, so brilliant, so glorious, so otherworldly, so much better than you. And he has brought you in and made you one of his. And he is, he is, He's included your voice in his. That is an amazing, amazing truth. That is a truth that can change your life. And what's amazing about it is that he doesn't have to. Do you really think that our 80 voices make any real difference in decibel? No. Do you think that he really needs us to do this announcing for him? No. It's again out of pure grace. It says something about him. It says, listen to this. It says that he's not utilitarian. It says that he doesn't just have a to-do list to get done. It says that he's a people person. He has a people, a people he doesn't need, but a people that he wants. And so he draws us near and he allows us to be all part of the incredible rushing glory. He invites you to be part of this incredible reign that he is upon and to belong to this incredible redemptive story that he is unfolding. He is bringing you in. What a king. What a father. Imagine it this way. Imagine that a father has a a woodworking project out in the garage at the wood shop. And out there amongst all of his tools, he has a plan to build a real big birdhouse. 
And he can go out there and he can build it all by himself and he can take it out and hang it up in the tree and he can see all of the work that he has done and he can admire it as the birds come and build their nest. But instead, he says to his son or his daughter, come with me. And he takes them out to the wood shop in the garage and he involves them in the project. He does not need to. As they plane the wood, he puts his hand on top of theirs and they smooth out the wood. As he uses the the tools, he he shows how to, to change the angle of the cut. He holds back behind his children the wood and presses it through the saw. They put it together together, but he doesn't need them. Why does he do that? Because he loves them. Because he wants them near to him. And that's the kind of king that we're reading about here. Brilliant in power and enormous, enormous in love. Make no mistake, God has not invited you into a wood shop, but into a world to proclaim with him good news, to minister to hearts, to display his grace. He has invited you in, in Christ. If you look closely, you can find this all across Scripture. Here's one, John 17, 22. The glory you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them. Your glory, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. He has given us his very glory. And his glory is our glue. It is our purpose. It is our unity. Here's another, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is only possible if the God of glory gives you his glory. If he draws you near and brings you in. This is what makes our lives matter. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's no accident. He has made his glory so much a part of our lives that we not only behold it, but it changes us. And then finally, what will come up later in Revelation, even toward the very end, Revelation 21.3, here's the voice again. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This magnificent book of scripture will end with words like that. That's how it all comes together. This is where we are. If you know Christ, this is where you are. And in this moment, in this age, we have been given a place with him, for him, 
by him. And our place is to be one of many rushing waters. So if you, as you apply this, these verses to your life, as I apply them to mine, there is an important consideration for us, and that is, how are we doing? How are we doing at contributing to the river of rushing water? This is all about your voice. It's all about your place, your purpose, the meaning of your life, why you get up in the morning, why do you do what you do? And the question is, how are you contributing? Because you've already seen this is where you are. You're in the river. You are the river. What is your voice being used for? I was told recently, and I believe it's true of me, and I believe it's true of you, that the world does not mainly need me to be a political commentator right now. The world does not need me to be an epidemiologist right now. The world does not need me to be a record keeper of wrongs right now. What the world needs me to be is a voice among thousands of rescue. So we have to consider that. Where is my voice? Has my voice come upon a rock in the river and been diverted into another stream? Is my voice off somewhere else? You can hear the rushing waters in the distance, but my voice is, is over here working away at these priorities and these purposes and these plans. Well, we pray, oh God, if that's where we are, and sometimes I am, oh God, dig a trench, channel me back to the river, because I want to be a part of this rushing of voices for you. Finally, I want you to see this together with me. Jesus is our wise priest. Jesus is our brilliant power. And finally, Jesus is our majestic judge. This glory that has been given to us changes many things about us. And one of the most brilliant is that it changes our ultimate destiny. From one of condemnation into which we were born in Christ because, or in sin because we're sinners. He's changed our destination to one of redemption. These scriptures are frightening. If you're in Christ, they're incredibly comforting, but if you're not, they are frightening. Just as we read in verse 16, we see some more aspects of his character or nature in the vision put this way as John refers to his hand and his mouth and his face listen to this in his hand he held the seven stars the seven stars in, again in, in pagan religion of the time was, was often used as a kind of reference to the stars of heaven of astrology in the way that you could understand the fortune or the destiny of your life. God is saying through John that Jesus in his right hand holds those seven stars. If you're looking at the stars to, de to determine what is my destiny, zoom out and you will see a hand holding those seven stars, holding your very destiny. 
This is a God who controls everything and he brings everything to his ultimate purpose. This is a God you need to know. This is not a God you want as your enemy because he holds you in his hand. But then listen to this. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That is frightening. That's a frightening image. That's a startling image that we, we come up with in movies because it's so awkward. It's so unexpected. It doesn't happen in real life. But here you see that his mouth, out of his mouth, comes a sharp two-edged sword. It's not just a one-edged sword, it's two. It cuts coming and it cuts going. Of course, we know from the scriptures, this is his powerful word. It is his judging word in judgment upon the world. He holds the world in his hand and his word will be the final word about the world. This is frightening. This is the kind of image you... You don't want to let out of your mind because this is the real Jesus. He is the majestic judge. When you see this, it frightens you. Unless, unless you belong to him. You see, when those who belong to him see this, they're not frightened. They're rejoicing. They rejoice in this image because that sword is not the sword that is coming to kill them. It is the sword that is coming to defend them. It's the sword that comes to direct them. It's the sword that comes to prune them. And ultimately, it's the sword that makes their hearts ultimately glad in Him. They rejoice in His shining face, which is the last description He gives. You see that there, His face was like the sun, shining in its strength. His face, like the sun. This is the blessing and the wish of the gospel on other people. This is what we wish for the world. We want his face in all of its glory to shine upon the world. Just as we read this and Numbers 6, 24, this priestly blessing of the high priest. You've heard this before. It'll come back to you as I read it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you notice how it says over and over again, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Here in this priestly blessing, here with his shining face, he is speaking blessings over people. He is keeping them in peace. This face is, it's the symbol of his personality, of his disposition towards you with grace. And therefore, those who know him, when they see the sword come out of his mouth and his shining face like the sun, they rejoice. And it gives them hope and it gives them courage. It gives them perseverance because they see that they are in his kingdom no matter what tribulation may come. The last question for us this morning as we consider even these last words of the text is, what then then do we wish for other people? 
What do we wish for the people of the world, for the nations of the world? What do we even wish for the opponents of the world, our opponents? We wish his face would shine upon them because that's what his face has done to us. That's how we have come to be so glad about Christ. He has made his face to shine upon us. We have been given the very best, if you want to say job, in the world as believers. We get every day to tell people with voices like a rushing water about a priest who is wise, his power is brilliant, and that his face is shining with the full strength of the sun in grace onto the world. And that if you would come to him, if you would belong to him and repent and believe in him, trust him, come into him, then you would be saved and you would know all of this joy that comes because of him. And he would become your Jesus. Our prayer this morning is that many people around the world where our missionaries are at work, where we are at work, where God is at work, would see his face shine upon them. And we want to be praying for that. We want to be working for that. We want to be sharing for that reason. So let me encourage you again, over and over again, let's be sharing the gospel. Let's be telling people about this because this is our Jesus and he is a king of grace and truth and wisdom and help in all times. Please stand with me as we pray to this God of ours and ask him to do that work among us and through us. Together, our Father, we come to you now as we've looked at your word and we pray that your word would take root in our hearts and we want to, to have this renewed, fresh vision of Christ and his glory. And we want to be made joyful in you because you have cared for us. You've taken care of our lives. We pray, God, oh God, please make us like rushing waters. Help us to consider our voices what our voice is being used for, the voice that you have given to us. What is our ultimate focus? What is our ultimate plan and purpose in the world? We pray that our plan and purpose would be the same as yours, that we would join you, that you would use us, that you would be glorified because of us. And we pray that you'd help us in every way this week to honor you and to love you, to look after your wisdom, and to trust you, and to be enamored with you. Our Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us in every way. We pray you're glorified now, even as we sing once again from our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.